Dear Heavenly Father, Father, thank you for another opportunity to be here with your people and to share Jesus Christ and his righteousness. I pray for your blessing, that you will guide us, that the Holy Spirit will be here and that you will help me as I share this information, that it won't just be uh, information for the head, but especially for the heart. Please guide us, Father, and teach us your last message for the world. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I am going to give you some very, very important and solid information that I have been researching and studying for many, many years. Uh, just about everything, plus a whole lot more, is in this book called God's Last Message, Christ Our Righteousness. This was recently published by Pacific Press. Ed Reed wrote the foreword. It is the result of many years of research and information. Uh, and I'm just thrilled to know what I know and to have a chance to share it. Uh, Revelation chapter 18, verse 1 says, After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. You notice that verse is talking about power and light coming down from heaven and the whole earth eventually being lightened. Now, uh, on the screen here is a, a drawing from my little boy. I have a nine-year-old son, Seth, and a five-year-old daughter named Abby. And it wasn't too many months ago when little Seth uh, woke up sometime around 6 o'clock or 6.30 in the morning, and he came into the living room where I was reading my Bible, and he said to me, very animated, he said, Daddy, Daddy, he said, I just had an amazing dream. And I said, well, what was your dream, Seth? And he said, Daddy, he said, uh, in my dream, I, I went up, and the way he said it was, I went up to the new Jerusalem, to the holy city. That's what he said. I went up to the new Jerusalem, to the holy city. And he said, in my dream, I saw the streets of gold. And he said, I, I saw uh, buildings and various things that, was th that were there. And he said, um, he didn't actually say he saw buildings, but he said he saw the streets of gold. And then he said, and daddy, I saw Jesus sitting on his throne. And he said, Jesus was so bright, he was so bright that I had to squint in order to see him. That's what he said. Now, Seth doesn't normally have dreams like that. <laughs> he has dreams, and I have dreams, and a lot of people have dreams. But this was a different kind of dream. And so uh, I, I looked at him, and I thought, wow, you know, maybe the Lord really gave this to him, and he's, he's talking to his little heart. And as I was listening... Then I, I, thought of, I thought of a Bible verse, and I opened my Bible to, to Acts chapter 2, verse 17, that says that in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and it talks about people having dreams and people seeing visions. And I had my Bible open to that verse, and I he was standing right next to me, and I showed him that verse. I said, look at this verse, Seth. So he looked down. And he saw where it said, last days, spirit poured out, people having dreams. And he put his hand on his chest and he just went, oh. he said, daddy, these are the last days. Yeah. 
these are the last days, because he felt like God gave him that dream. He really, he really did. So I told him, I said, Setha, I want you to write, r- write out your dream. And he said, Daddy, put it on Facebook. Put it on your Facebook page. That's what he said. Put it on your Facebook page. So I said, all right, you, you draw it out, and I'll take a picture of it on my phone, and I'll put it on my Facebook page. And so that's what he drew right here. That's why I have this picture here. Seth drew this, Seth's dream. There you see Jesus on the throne. He's smiling. There's all the rays of light. There's Seth over there. Here's the, the corridor going to the throne. And there is the Bible. The Bible. And when I posted that on my Facebook page and showed people that my son had this dream, I got a lot of responses, all kinds of responses. People were just uh, pretty excited. Now, I don't believe that every dream you know, anybody has comes from God. But it sure seemed to me that the Lord was talking to my son. And the main point of my sharing this with you is that Seth said that Jesus was so bright. He was just so bright. And if you look at this verse in Revelation 18, verse 1, it tells us that one of these days, an angel is going to come down from heaven having great power, and the whole earth is going to be lightened with God's glory. And I believe that 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 angel represents a final move of God in the world. And that we we call that the latter rain, when the latter rain comes down. And that the light that is going to lighten the whole earth with its glory, I believe, is really the light of Jesus Christ. It's the brightness of the Lord. One last time, Jesus is going to send his brightness and his light to the people of the world before probation closes. Now, if you study Revelation 18.1 carefully and read the whole chapter, it talks about the fall of Babylon, which is the second angel's message. And when you put the pieces together, and here's another picture here with that verse on there, the earth was lightened with his glory. When you put the pieces together, the angel of Revelation 18.1 coming down and lightening the earth, really what that angel does is he gives special power to the third angel's message, to the three angel's messages, and especially to the third angel, so that the three angel's messages will have one final burst of power all around the world. We call Revelation 18.1 the fourth angel. The fourth angel comes down, combines with the three angels, and gives one last call to humanity. And at the end, if you go back to chapter 14, Revelation 14 describes the three angels' messages. And here's a picture of the three angels on the screen. At the conclusion of the three angels, we have this verse. Revelation 14, verse 12. says, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. That is the conclusion of the third angel. So you've got that fourth angel coming down. He gives power to the three angels, especially to the third angel. The earth is lightened. And at the very conclusion, you've got this verse. And my conviction is that this verse uh, is just about, I don't know if I can you know, compare which verse is more important, but the most well-known verse in the Bible is John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave his son. Uh, My conviction is that this verse is one of these days going to be the most widely known verse on planet Earth. It's going to be quoted over and over and over and over again 
around the world. And this is, this is basically God's final call. Uh, the third angel's message warns about the beast, the image, the mark. It describes what's going to happen to those who get the mark. And then it calls people to be part of this group, this group of saints. They're called saints. And notice that they do two things, two primary characteristics. They keep the commandments of God, the law of God. And the second thing is they have the faith of Jesus, those two things. And both of them are uh, immeasurably important. You can't overestimate either one of them. And I've read the three angels' messages many, many times. I've thought a lot about them. I've been studying them for over 30 years. And one thing that has impressed me is that here is the period at the end of the verse. The, that, that is the period at the end of the last message of God in the last time for the whole world. And what is the one word before the period? What is the last word before the period at the end of the last message of God to the world? It's Jesus. That's right, Jesus. And that tells me that Jesus is the final word. He's the last word. And when you really study the three angels' messages, the everlasting gospel is about Christ. He's the foundation. The lamb is mentioned in the third angel's message. At the end of verse 10, he's at the heart of the third angel. And he is the conclusion at the very end of the third angel's message. And I'm going to show you in this study, we're going to have a Bible study in just a few minutes. I'm going to give you a Bible study, and I am going to prove to you that the only way that anybody can keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus is through Jesus Christ as our righteousness. That is the only way. And thus the message of the righteousness of Christ is at the heart of the third angel's message. And I'll explain this to you. I'll prove it to you. I'll make it very, very clear to you so you will, you will get it. The lights will go on. You'll go, aha, I see it. It's, uh, it's very, very powerful. Now, let me show you a quotation from volume six of the testimonies, page 19. This uh, paragraph basically unpacks the conclusion of the third angel's message. It's very, very important. This is what she says. The Lord God of heaven will not send upon the world his judgments for disobedience and transgression until he has sent his watchmen to give the warning. Now that makes sense. God didn't send a flood in the days of Noah until he raised up Noah to give a message. When Jesus was born, God raised up John the Baptist to give a message. And the biggest event ahead of us is the second coming of Christ, the close of probation, the seven last plagues, and the second coming. And it, it just makes perfect sense that God's not going to close probation and send the plagues and then send his son until, like it says, he has sent his watchmen to give the warning. And that's our calling as a people. We have been raised up by God to give a very clear message to the world. And then it goes on and says, he will not close up the period of probation until the message shall be more distinctly proclaimed. Distinctly means very clearly. 
clearly. Now then it says that the law of God is to be magnified. Now that's really the first half of the conclusion of the third angel, right? Here are they that keep the commandments of God. So the commandments of God are right there. And God's law is to be lifted up higher and higher and higher. Uh, many times when I go out to my seminars, which I didn't do here, but uh, especially when I'm holding them for the public, I will carry with me on the airplane two big tables of stone that I got a long time ago when I was an Amazing Facts evangelist. And I, I package them, you know, and I carry them on the plane, and they're pretty heavy. And then when I get to my seminar and I'm giving a, a Bible study with a crowd, uh, a lot of them are visitors from other churches. Most of the meetings that we hold are for the public. When I get to the point of talking about the Ten Commandments, I will lift these up and I will bring them up to the front, you know, and I'll hold these two tables in front of me. And I wish I had them here right now, but I think you know enough about the law of God. I just decided not to haul them all over here to GYC. <laughs> but the point is that God's law is very, very impressive. It's very important. And the Bible tells us that that law is to be magnified. Its claims must be presented in their true and sacred character that the people may be brought to decide for or against the truth. Now, I'm going to explain this as we continue to go along. That Ellen White says that God's law is to be lifted up, and it's going to be so clear, so precise, that people will see the Ten Commandments and recognize its claims upon their lives, and then they will have to make a decision. They will have to make a choice. It says for or against the truth. Now, it's in that context that then she says, yet the message or the work will be cut short in righteousness. The message of Christ's righteousness is to sound from one end of the earth to the other to prepare the way of the Lord. This is the glory of God which closes the work of the third angel. Now, that has really impressed me. Uh, I'll just, you know, confess to you. I know that these days not everybody believes in the writings of Ellen White. Um, some people are very skeptical about her books. Uh, I became an Adventist because I read Desire of Ages. Somebody handed me a copy of Desire of Ages, and I read that book. I didn't know who she was. I knew nothing about it. I didn't grow up in the church. I grew up in uh, North Hollywood. My family's Jewish. I was uh, not religious at all. My hair was very long. Back in those days, uh, I wore a lot of different clothes than I wear now. I don't know if I ever wore a suit back then. Uh, I would go to the discos, the parties. Uh, I was, you know, the, a typical, what, what people would call a postmodern kid. Uh, didn't know anything about truth or the Bible or anything. And yet when, when I read the book Desire of Ages, everything changed. Everything changed. It gave me a picture of Jesus that just really got a hold of my heart. And that's how I became a Christian. And I gave up my marijuana. I gave up my cocaine. I gave up my LSD. I gave up my quaaludes. I gave up my uh, uh, hash, my honey oil, my rock and roll albums, uh, my tight laced pants that I used to go to the discos with. Uh, all of that, I just gave it all up. And I said, I want Jesus. He's more important to me than anything else. 
And that was 34 years ago. And now I tell you, it hasn't been an easy road for 34 years. It has been a battle and a struggle. And there have been times when I've questioned the spirit of prophecy myself. And I've had struggles over her writings and over the Bible. I've had all kinds of struggles. But God has always brought me through those things. And I've come out of those things believing strongly in this book and strongly in this church and strongly in these writings. I believe this. It's changed me. And as we go on, I'm going to show you the heart of what has really been the good news, which is the message of Christ's righteousness. And this quote has really impressed me. She says, in the context of the law being lifted up, in that context, we have the message of Christ's righteousness going all over the world. From coast to coast, from one end of the earth to the other. And she says that this is the glory of God that closes the work of the third angel. Isn't that powerful? And I'm going to unpack this. So you're going to understand exactly how this works. And it's going to be so clear and so simple. I think one of the, uh, one of the hallmarks of error is that it's just kind of hard to understand. You know, have you ever heard a sermon? You go, I just, I don't get that. Or read a book. I just can't quite figure this out. Uh, truth is very simple. Truth is simple. And it's something that's powerful. And it's something you can understand. And when you get it, you got it. You got it. And that statement has been a guide for me that the Lord is going to put the message of his righteousness at the middle of his last message to the world. Now, let's go to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 3. And let me also clarify that I believe that when the final time comes, when this time comes, when the final crisis hits, the law is lifted up, and the message of Christ's righteousness sounds, that that message is going to be given to the world primarily from the Bible. Now, I believe in Ellen White's writings. I believe God has given that gift to our church. But the purpose of that gift is to point us to the word. And when we're dealing with the public, primarily we need to be pointing people to the Bible. And, and that's, what I, that's what our ministry does. So when I hold my seminars and when I teach this, and I hold up the big tables of stone and then talk about Jesus and his righteousness, I'm doing it from the Bible. And that's what you can do as well. And by the time we're done with this first meeting and finally the last meeting, uh, you will be able to do that as well. So, Romans chapter 3. Now, let me give you just a quick review of Romans uh, chapter 1, among other things, Romans 1 is about, especially the second half of the chapter, about the pagan world, the Gentile world, the non-Jewish world. And Paul gives a long list in verses uh, 28, 29, and 30, 31, about the wickedness and the sins of the world at large. And he basically says that the Gentile world is in a lost condition. 
when he gets to chapter 2, then he zeroes in on the Jews. And he talks about the Jewish claims to be spiritual and to keep the law, and yet they're not doing it most of the time. And so he basically says in chapter 2 that the Jewish world is lost in sin. When you get to chapter 3, in verse 9, Paul puts both Jews and Gentiles together in the same boat. Verse 9, he says, What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved that both the Jews and the Gentiles, that they are all under sin. So here, Paul basically says that we're all in this together. We're all in the same boat. Now, verse 10, and here's verse 10 on the screen. He says, there is none righteous, no, just a few. There's a few righteous in every church. Is that what he says? There is none righteous, but at least one. Is that what he says? No. Paul says there is none righteous, and just to make sure that we don't miss it, if we didn't get this part, he stresses it again, and he says, no, not one. Now, this is not flattering, but it's true. It's true. Um, now, this is very important. The word righteous, in order for us to understand the righteousness of Christ, we have to understand what righteous or righteousness means, biblically. I'm not going to just give you my opinion. I'm going to show you what the Bible says. All right, now, um, keep your finger here in Romans 3, because we're going to come back to it. Turn to chapter 8, verse 4. Chapter 8, verse 4. And somebody said I was going to have some water up here. I wonder if anybody can attend to that. I can feel my... If you wouldn't mind, thank you. That would be great. All right. Now let's define righteous or righteousness. Romans 8, verse 4. Paul says that the righteousness of the law, and then we'll read more of this later, but here, notice, he says the righteousness of the law. So Paul identifies the law as a law of righteousness. He does the same in chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 31. Paul said, but Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness. See that? They have not attained to the law of righteousness. And then he says, why not? And the answer is because they did not seek it by faith. So here again, Paul uh, associates the law with righteousness. When you read the book Steps to Christ, page 61, which by the way, just for the record, I think is the best book ever written on the message of Christ our righteousness. The best book ever written is not my book. <laughs> God's last message, Christ our righteousness. The best book is Steps to Christ. So if you, if you all have that, you've got it. But this book also gets a lot of history behind 1888, the message of Jones and Wagner, the history of the Adventist church, and it deals with a lot of these issues. So it's, it's in here as well. So anyway, my point, uh, Steps to Christ, page 61. 
she says that righteousness is defined by the standard of God's holy law given on Mount Sinai. That's what she says. Paul says it in Romans 8.4, 9.31. There's other verses in Isaiah, verses in Psalms that identify the Ten Commandments, God's law as a law of righteousness. Now, just to make that simple, uh, righteousness goes back to the word righteous, which goes back to the word right. And essentially, God's law is a righteous law because it clarifies for us what is right and what is wrong. And I tell you, our world needs to know what's right and what's wrong. Don't you agree? I mean, if we don't know what's right and what's wrong, how can we really be Christians? Did you have a comment, question? Yeah, well, Will, you're right. He said Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. Tremendous significance. And we'll, we'll continue to go, go deeper into this as we go along. But I've got to lay the foundation. The third angel's message is the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And we have to understand the commandments of God in order to understand the faith of Jesus. They go together. And in the last meeting, the next one, I'll describe how this fits in the context of the final crisis, when the mark of the beast is enforced by law. It'll be very, very clear. But anyway, here you see on the screen the Ten Commandments and a hand pointing to the law. I have the deepest conviction that if there was ever a time when the Ten Commandments need to be taught to young and old alike, it's right now. We need to know the Ten Commandments backwards and forwards. Uh, I teach my children the Ten Commandments. I teach them to my five-year-old. I'll, I'll often ask my, my kids, what commandment is number five? What's number nine? What's number four? What's number seven? And, and most of the time, they'll know them. And my son, my nine-year-old, he can go right down top to bottom. He can quote the first, second, third, fourth, straight down the line. He knows them. And if there was ever a time when we need to be teaching that this it's right now, because the world is confused. People are very, very confused, but God is not confused. Right is right, wrong is wrong, and what is right and what is wrong is described in the Ten Commandments written with the finger of God on two tables of stone. There is no law anywhere that is as important as the Ten Commandments. There's no law that has been written with the finger of God, except the Ten Commandments. And Paul, when he says there is none righteous, no, not one, he's saying this in the context of the law. That basically, when you look at the whole world, the world really, if you go down one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, the whole world has not kept the Ten Commandments. Now go down to verse 19. Romans, back to chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 19. Let's look at this. Here comes my water. Thank you. You know, my, my brain is 80% water. I read that. 
maybe you should. Your body is uh, about 70% water. Your bloodstream is somewhere, somewhere around 75. Your brain is 80. So if you want your brain to work right, you need a lot of water. <laughs> All right, now let's look at verse 19. Romans 3.19, Paul said, Now we know that what things soever the law says, it says to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. There's a lot of people that say that the Old Testament was law and the New Testament is grace. Have you heard that? Well, the truth is, there's a whole lot of grace in the Old Testament. And there's a lot of law in the New Testament. And that when you really read Paul carefully, which we are going to be doing, you find law and grace go together. They go together. Now, let me explain something to you. Um, the devil would love to get people on one side or the other, but not in the middle. And the emphasis on the law, uh, the Jews focused on the law. The Pharisees said, we follow Moses, the law, the law. But when Jesus came bringing his grace, they wanted nothing to do with him. So they followed the law, but they, or they said they followed the law, and they rejected Christ. Now today, a lot of Christians say grace Jesus, but they don't want the law. Ellen White in Great Controversy calls that a, 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 a terrible error, a great error. In, in the history of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, we started out, once we discovered the heavenly sanctuary, the most holy place, the ark, and the law, and the Sabbath, we became very law-oriented. And Ellen White said at one point that we have preached the law of the law until we are as dry as the hills of Gilboa. That's what she said. We've overemphasized the law and we've neglected the gospel. But today, even in our church, many people are swinging back over and they're saying grace, 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 and they want nothing to do with the law. What happened in the year 1888, and that's what my book describes in great detail. In 1888, a man named Ellet J. Wagner from California, no less. Some good things can come out of California. <laughs> he went to the Minneapolis General Conference in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and gave a series of lectures. And he talked about the law of God and Jesus Christ and his righteousness together. And it was so powerful that Ellen White said, I see the beauty in the presentation of the righteousness of Christ in relation to the law as Dr. Wagner has presented it before us. And she, that's what she got behind. And then she finally said that this message of Christ's righteousness in the context of the law is the beginning of the rays of light that are gonna lighten the whole earth. That's what she said. And Wagner got his notes from Romans and Galatians. That's where Wagner got his information. And that's what's right here. And so we're going to look at this and just keep on, keep on studying it. Now, verse 19 again, Romans 3, 19. In the light of the law, 
Paul says, it says to those who are under the law, and under the law means under its authority, that every mouth, not every just Jewish mouth, but every mouth, may be stopped, and all the world, how, so how far does the law reach? All the world. All the world may become, and what's that next word? Guilty before God. This is very important. To be guilty means to be accountable for your sins of breaking the law of God. That's what it means. You are, you are accountable for the sins that you've committed. And when you've broken the law, you're guilty. We all know that guilt is real. Isn't that right? Guilt is very, very real. And Paul puts the whole world under the law and under guilt before God. Verse 20 says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight, either Jew or Gentile. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Now let me explain this. In the light of God's law, because we're guilty, Paul says, therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified. The word justified in his sight basically means to be not guilty before God. At the end of verse 19, he talks about being guilty before God. In verse 20, he talks about being justified in his sight. See that? Those are opposites. We're either guilty or we're justified. I either stand before God, before his law. If I look at his law, I'm guilty before him of breaking these commandments. Now, if God justifies me, then I stand before him as if I never sinned. It's, it's that simple. Guilty or justified, one or the other. And Paul says, once we're guilty, he says, by the deeds, which means by the works of trying to keep the law, shall no flesh be justified. Once you've broken the law, you're, you're basically stuck in yourself. Uh, and, and no amount of works or obedience can get you out of your mess. It's impossible. Uh, let me illustrate this. Imagine a person killed a man, pulled the trigger and shot him. And he got caught and he was thrown in jail. And he's in jail for six months. At the end of those six months, he's brought before the judge. And the judge looks at him and says, did you do it on the dark night? of June 29 or 28 or whatever day it was that you did this. And the man looks at the judge and says, Your Honor, I did it. I killed him. And then the judge says, Well, what do you have to say for yourself? And then, and then the man says this. He says, Your Honor, here's my defense. He said, I did that, but that was six months ago. And I have been, for the last six months, I've been sitting in my cell. And I've been really good. I haven't killed anybody. I've scrubbed my, the walls of my cell. I've mopped the floor. I've uh, done dish duty in the cafeteria. I've uh, helped the guards whenever they need you know, something that I could do. Uh, I've, been, I've been a model citizen, a model prisoner inside my cell. And for the last six months, I have been keeping the law. So, Your Honor, won't you justify me now? So what's a good judge going to say? Is, is the, his works of keeping the law for six months going to justify him from the sin of, of committing murder? 
No, that's right. The gavel will still come down. You're guilty. And the reason is, and don't miss this, once you, once you have broken the law and you are guilty before God and your mouth is stopped and you have nothing to say, then no amount of obedience is going to remove your guilt. You're stuck and you have no way out in yourself. It's, it's absolutely impossible. And that's what Paul is saying here. Some people try to get rid of their guilt by entertainment. Some people try therapy. Some people go into drugs and alcohol and sex. Some people try to get rid of their guilt by being obedient, by keeping the law. But the reality is that no amount of keeping the law is going to remove your guilt. When you're guilty, you're guilty. You are, you are stuck. And that's what Paul is saying here. And at the end of verse 20, he says, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So can we be justified by the law? No. That's what Paul says. It's impossible. Now, some people say, well, since we're not justified by the law, that's what some people in Sunday churches will say to Adventists. They'll say, don't you read Romans? Don't you know we're not justified by the law? And then what they do is they throw out the law. But that's not what Paul's saying. He, he's saying you can't be saved by the law, but the law is still right there. It's in full force. And it speaks to the whole world. And it stops every mouth. And it shows everyone they're guilty before God. That's what the Bible says. Right? And at the end of verse 20, he says that the law still serves a very important function. And the function is, by the law is the knowledge of sin. Now, what that means is that we generally don't really know that we're sinners. You know, generally we think we're pretty good. Most people do. If you were to give the average person a, you know, a survey, a put, put the average person in a survey and say, do you think you're good enough to go to heaven? Yeah, I think so. I'm a good person. That's what most people think. It's, it's natural for the human heart to think it's pretty good. But when you take a real close look at the law and you look at the first commandment that says, no other gods before me. God is to be number one in our lives. And you look at the second one, no idols, which, you know, idols can be money, cars, people, opinions, all kinds of idols in this world. No idols. And you look at the third commandment, don't take God's name in vain. Respect his name. Speak reverently of the Lord. Number four, keep the Sabbath holy, which doesn't just mean go to church once a week. It means to really keep the day as a holy day. And number five, honor your father and your mother. And that means your mother and your father. Doesn't mean someone else. You know, your own parents. I need to honor my dad. His name is Gene, Gene Wahlberg. My mother's name is Sandy. They're both still alive. And I, God requires me to honor and respect my parents. Number six, uh, don't, don't murder, which can also mean don't hate. Jesus said, and John said, if you hate your brother in your heart, you know, you're a murderer. Number seven says, do not commit adultery. 
Now that's a big one. And it doesn't just apply to married people being faithful to their spouses. Uh, we can commit adultery in our minds. Jesus said that if you lust in your mind and cherish wrong thoughts in your mind, he said you've committed adultery already in your heart. And that applies to the internet. That applies to pornography. That applies to websites and magazines and television programs people watch. And magazines in Walmart, when you go buy food and you go through the check stand and you see all these magazines of women uh, and you know men too for women, whether it's a man or a woman, if we are lusting and thinking all kinds of evil thoughts in our minds, we're breaking the seventh commandment. And number eight says don't, uh, don't steal. Don't take anything from someone that doesn't belong to you. Number nine, do not bear false witness against your neighbor. Don't lie about somebody. And number 10 is don't covet. Don't covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. And then Jesus summarized the big 10 with the big two. This, the 10 are summarized by love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. That is God's law. And that is, is what's right. It is right for you to put the Lord first. It's right for you not to have any idols. Don't take his name in vain. Keep the Sabbath. Honor your parents. Don't hate. Uh, be sexually pure inside or outside of marriage. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't covet. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. That law is right. Are you with me? Can you understand? Is that simple and clear? Truth is simple. Truth can be understood. And Paul's point is that when you really take a close look at God's law full force with an honest heart, the Holy Spirit will convict you that you have broken that law somewhere. And I strongly believe that we are in a time when God's people need to be searching their hearts, looking at the Ten Commandments, and discovering where we have div diverted from God's law. A number of years ago, I was living in San Francisco by myself before I got married. And uh, one night, I turned off the lights in my apartment by myself, and I just started to pray. And as I prayed, I had this mental picture of the Ten Commandments in front of me. And as I looked at those Ten Commandments and began going down through them one by one, each commandment one by one began to light up. Like when I was a little kid, I used to play pinball. You know what pinball games are? When I was a little kid, I used to go to the arcades. And I used to play these games, you know, where you ping, the ball goes up, and if it hits a certain thing, it lights up. And I would try to hit them, hit the balls different places. And these different little things would light up. And that's what happened to the Ten Commandments. They were lighting up. Number five lit up. Number one lit up. Number nine lit up. And I just looked one by one, and the Holy Spirit was convicting me that point by point by point, I, even as a Seventh-day Adventist minister, at that point I was a minister, that I still had things in my life and in my past where I had broken God's law. And the conviction came very, very clear. And I really believe that the Holy Spirit is doing a work to try to show people their sins where they've broken the Ten Commandments. And he's doing that right now. He's, he's trying to do it to you. He's trying to do it to me. Now, he's not doing this to, uh, to discourage us. He's not doing it to make us lost, but he's doing it to save us, to save us. 
but he wants us to know the knowledge of our sins. Like verse 20 says, by the law is the knowledge of sin. In order for us to have any kind of appreciation of Jesus Christ at all, we have to know that we're sinners. If we don't know we're sinners, why do we need a Savior? If I don't know I'm a sinner, why do I need Jesus? See what I mean? There's no reason for Jesus. What, grace means nothing, nothing, unless you know you're a sinner, that you've broken God's law. That's how the law and the gospel go together. Now, let's keep going, because that's basically the bad news. 19 and 20 is the bad news. And the reality is that if you don't know the bad news, you can't appreciate the good news. Some people only want to preach good news. They want to stand up in front of crowds. They want to just, all they want is good news. They want to feel good. But the truth is that if, you, if God doesn't make you feel bad, then you're not going to appreciate the good news. They go together. It's just the way it is. And that's what Paul is doing here. So in verse 21, then he gets into the good news. In verse 21, he says, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. When, is, when am I supposed to be done for this, uh, this segment? Anybody know? 2.30? That means I have six minutes, right? Yeah. Okay, well, uh, let's go for six minutes, and then we'll stop, and then we'll take a break. Do we, do we have a break between this one and the next meeting? How much of a break do we have? Who knows? 20 minutes? <laughs> Do I hear 30? <laughs> it doesn't really say it does. So we have no break. <laughs> All right. Well, okay. Um, I, I don't want to go through this fast. So let's just go for another five minutes or so, and then we'll take a break for, let's say, 10 minutes, and then we'll continue on. Okay. Verse 21, but now, just like verse 19 says, now, now people are guilty. So verse 21 says, but now the righteousness of who? God. The righteousness of, of God. Now let me push my button here. Okay, the righteousness of God. Right, now notice, Paul's talking about righteousness, and now he says righteousness of God. So once he shows people their condition and their sins, then he lifts up the righteousness, not of you or of me, but the righteousness of God himself. God's righteousness, which is what we need. And he says, now that righteousness is, uh, is without the law, which means when it says without the law, anybody have any different translation besides without the law? Okay, apart from the law. That means there is now, there is a righteousness from God that is apart from the law. It's separate from the law. It is not the law. It's a different righteousness. But he says also that it is, in, it is being manifested. It's going to be revealed. And then he says, but it is witnessed by the law and the prophets, which means that the law of God looks at that righteousness, which is separate, and the prophets do too, and they say that is it. 
the law looks at the righteousness of God and says that righteousness is perfect. It's perfect. Absolutely perfect. And then verse 22 says, even the righteousness of God, now there's the second time he says it, righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ. There's Jesus Christ mentioned there. To all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned, which means broken the law, and come short of the glory of God, but they are being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So Jesus then is lifted up as the center. Salvation is through him. It's through him. Verse 25 says, whom God has set forth, God has set forth his son to be a propitiation, which the word propitiation in the Greek uh, basically means the mercy seat. When you think about the most holy place in the sanctuary, inside the most holy place was that golden box called the ark, and inside that box was the law. And on top of the box was a golden lid called the mercy seat. And the mercy seat rested on top of the ark, underneath which was the law. And on the day of Yom Kippur, the Jewish day of atonement, the high priest took blood and sprinkled it on top of the mercy seat. So you've got blood on top of the mercy seat underneath which is the law. Got it? It's so powerful. It's so powerful. A propitiation through faith in his blood to declare, Paul says, to declare his what? Notice verse 25. Okay, to declare his righteousness. Now, whose righteousness is it talking about? It's talking about Jesus. To, to declare, I say, his righteousness for the remission or the forgiveness of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say, at this time, at this time, his what? His righteousness. That's right, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. See that? Now, here's my Bible here. And uh, you can't probably see this, but I like to mark my Bible. And I've got here where it talks about the law. People are under the law. Mouths are stopped. We're guilty. But then verse 21 talks about the righteousness of God. Verse 22 is the righteousness of God. Second, that's the second time. Verse 25 is his righteousness. That's the third time. And then verse 26 is to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness. So four times in Romans chapter 3, Paul talks about Jesus Christ, his righteousness, the righteousness of God. So my question is, is the message of Christ as our righteousness is this a biblical teaching? Is it right in the Bible? And, and the context of this focus is the law of God, right? Just like Ellen White said, she said the law of God is to be magnified. It's to be lifted up. So then people will be brought to, to make a decision for or against the truth. They see their condition. And then she says the message of Christ's righteousness is to be lifted up and it's to sound 
from one end of the earth to the other to prepare the way of the Lord. This is the glory of God which closes the work of the third angel. And that message is right in Romans chapter 3. And that's what Wagner preached at Minneapolis. He stood up and he read the Bible. And he told Seventh-day Adventists who were focusing on the law, he showed them the law and showed them their sins, that they were sinners, and then he lifted up Christ. And Ellen White listened to that and she said, wow, wow, this is powerful. She said, this is the beginning of the rays of light that are going to lighten the whole earth with its glory. See that? Wow, that's what she said. Well, it's, uh, it's 2.30. Let's have a prayer. We'll take a break, and then we'll come back because I've got a lot more to share with you in the last hour. I'm going to put all this together and then show how it relates to the final crisis when the mark of the beast is enforced. So let's have a prayer. Father in heaven, thank you so much for what we're learning in the Bible. And I pray that you will continue to be our teacher so that when I leave, everyone here will know that you have been teaching them from your book. Please help us to understand the message of the righteousness of Christ, which is the final message for the world. Help us to understand it and experience it here at this, this conference, in this meeting. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.